Sweet Jesus, thank you for a chance to study together. Uh, Lord, I believe you really blessed us yesterday. I know you blessed me. I pray that you'd bless us again today with fresh insights from your word to better understand the message of Christ, our righteousness, and uh, this important call that you've given the Seventh-day Adventist movement to present before the world. And so bless us now, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to have a Bible study on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a couple weeks, and we may double dip a little bit on some of this content, and I'm totally fine with that. It would be good to do that anyway. Um, But in that study, we're going to show three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do two for this study. Um, The first one is to confirm, uh, which is attributing the work of the Lamb for us. If you remember, Jesus is filling both of the key roles in the sanctuary service, Uh, both types, the sacrifice and the lamb. So there's a confirming work that the Holy Spirit is doing, which is attributing to us the work of the lamb. And there's a conforming work of the Holy Spirit, which is attributing the work of the priest. Okay. And we'll flush that as we go. So just kind of a title slide. Okay. So to confirm, someone grab Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 to 14, and read nice and loud. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, uh, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also ye, sorry, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed that Holy Spirit of promise, and fortune as well, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. All right, so... There's kind of a chronology of what he's saying here. You heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you trusted in Jesus, and then it says that you were sealed, okay? Now, this kind of raises some hands in your brain, potentially. Is this talking about, it's not talking about that sealing. This is not the seal of God that happens at the end of time. There are two forms of sealing that take place for people. This is basically like an early rain experience, and the sealing that happens to God's people at the end of time is more like a latter rain experience. Okay, so there are two different types of seals, just so you don't confuse those. Um, someone texted me a while back. I was like, ah, I'm talking to somebody, and they were kind of overlapping these two different seals, and they were getting really confused when they were trying to talk to their coworker about this. So um, these are not saying the same thing. Okay, so you trusted in Jesus. Uh, when you heard the gospel and you, and you believed the gospel and so forth, then it says that one of the functions the Holy Spirit serves is a seal, right? And it also says that the Holy Spirit serves as what in verse 14? In verse 14, the Holy Spirit serves another purpose. It serves as the, there you go. Who's the who in verse 14? Paul uses a bunch of pronouns and it's super confusing, isn't it? Uh, especially if you have like some translations capitalize things that talk about God, other translations don't capitalize things that talk about God. Capitalization is not inspired. There's a one in Second Thessalonians I do not believe is talking about God. Um, <clears throat> but in general, uh, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit who is the earnest or the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. What it's basically alluding to here is like a deposit Right? When you buy a large ticket item, you can't just walk into a Tesla dealership and say, give it to me, it pleases me well. Right? You can't do that. You have to do something to prove that you're good for it. Either pay cash up front right? like for the whole thing, or you need to give some form of a deposit or a down payment. And what you're doing to them is you're testifying that this is the first fruits. Right? This, is, this is me. This is part of my declaration 
that I will seal the deal later, right? I'm giving you something up front to show you that I'm good for this and that I'm going to seal the deal on the date that you and I agree to. So one of the things that's being said here then is that the Holy Spirit is serving as that down payment or deposit. That from the moment that you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit is testifying in heaven that heaven is now your home. And until Jesus comes to seal the deal at the second coming, you are viewed as a child of God who's heaven bound. This is part of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing for us. Now, this is not teaching once saved, always saved. Right? This is dependent upon you walking in that decision and abiding in Jesus. If you walk away from that decision, that changes everything. But as someone believes in Jesus, there's a work happening from that moment until Jesus bursts through those clouds where the Holy Spirit is testifying this person is heaven-bound. This is a child of God who deserves to be here. Now, is that good news? What do you think? Yes. Yeah, that's super good news. Because we're always thinking we're not good enough, and yet the Holy Spirit, as soon as you said yes to Jesus, is testifying in heaven that because of Jesus, this person is good enough. So the very place where this conversation matters the most, someone believes that about you, while we down here wrestle with believing that. But this is an important teaching here. So in Ephesians 1, uh, this is what's referred to as imputed righteousness, okay, imputed righteousness, we're going to use some $10 words today, and justification, okay? Now, the word impute, I think I have a slide for this, actually. I do. Thank you, previous version of me. So, the word impute basically means to attribute something, an achievement of someone, or a possession of someone, or an attribute of someone to another party. So in this case, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. So when you believe in Jesus, when you say yes to the gospel, in that moment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed on your account. So that when God looks at you, you are declared righteous. That's basically what's being said with the word justification. It's the act of declaring or making someone righteous in the sight of God. So literally, as soon as you say yes to Jesus, you are declared righteous, okay? So these two, now, is that once you prove that you're good enough that you're declared righteous? No. One person's convinced. (laughs) So once you prove that you're good enough, then you're declared righteous, right? No. No, literally, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay? Which means that before you got anything right, God sent Jesus because he loves you. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love you. It's because the Father already loved you that he sent Jesus, and that's before you got anything right. And then, when we say yes to Jesus, in that very moment, we are declared righteous, and the Holy Spirit is testifying to that reality in that very moment, okay? And we'll continue to testify to that reality until Jesus comes, if you keep walking with Jesus. That's super good news, okay? Ellen White says it this way. She says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Okay? So her quote is, title to heaven. 
That's what gives us that benefit. Now, she uses two other words here, imparted and, and, there you go. All right, so the second work that's happening, uh, and we'll, we'll break this down more in some more text because there's still another um, confirmation text we're going to use in Romans 8. But you were declared righteous. The justification and the imputed righteousness of Christ are both doing the same thing. You are declared righteous in that moment. The imparted righteousness, basically this is the way you can look at imparted righteousness. It's the tangible delivery of the righteous life that Jesus has lived that's brought into your life. This is one of the reasons why you don't do certain things anymore that you used to do before you said yes to Jesus. Anyone else have a life that looks like that, that there are things I no longer do uh, because I gave my life to Jesus? It's not because like, oh man, that's unacceptable. I better stop that. Like there's a work that Jesus did in transforming your life and you no longer desire certain things that you used to desire. You no longer enjoy things that you used to enjoy. It doesn't mean your life just got worse, by the way. I don't mean both of those sounding negative, but you get what I mean. Like your, your tastes change and your life changes. Your moral structure is strengthened and developed. This is what's being said here, right? So this is basically the work of making one righteous. And this is what she would say is fitness for heaven. Okay? So we get both of these with the gospel. Not just one of them. We get both of them. We are declared righteous while he's making us righteous. And this is the best news ever because it's very easy for us as Christians to think, man, I messed up. I sinned. I love Jesus, but I messed up. I sinned. And does that mean I'm lost right now until I repent? Some people live in this experience that when I sin, I'm out of the favor of God, and they want to repent that I'm back into the favor of God. And so you're living this experience of going back and forth, right? Doing whatever those exercises are, right? <laughs> like you're saved, and then you're not saved, and then you're saved, and then you're not saved. What a miserable experience. It's miserable. And there are many Seventh-day Adventist Christians living like that right now. Not just saying evangelicals. They're Adventists who are living in this hellacious experience that I'm never good enough or I'm briefly good enough, but most of the time I'm blowing it. And I hope that I die in one of those brief moments of being good enough or I'm toast. We laugh, but there are so many miserable Adventists living this experience. Yeah. Well, here, here's the point of the gospel. You don't have to live in that headspace anymore. God, someone, there was a meme that went through the internet a while back that basically said that when God gave the calling for your life, he factored in your stupidity. And then it said like most encouraging thing I've heard all year, right? Like he understands that we're but dust and that it's a journey for us, right? Okay, yes. Um, so like, I don't know how to like word this, but like, um, like if we're, just count as righteous whenever we like accept Jesus or whatever. And then we sin. But like, is that sin 
covered if you don't ask for forgiveness, or is it just, uh, I don't know, it's just confusing? We're not saying anything about confession, right? right? Like, we should confess when we sin, right? We, and we've already talked about that, right? In the Haritzimai, Ephiamai, that whole situation that you are, that God already has a posture of forgiveness towards you, but if you want to be separated from your sin, it will require confession, right? So that part we've already addressed, and that's not the issue. What we're saying here is Christians are going to sin as they're striving to overcome sin, and God does not discount you because of that reality, right? So if I so, Well, we already addressed that, so we've already kind of talked about this, but there's no reason for you to not confess your sin. It's sinful and unreasonable to just do things and do nothing about it. No one's saying that, right? The point is, if you know you've done something, deal with it. Like, there's no reason not to, but if there are things that you don't know about, that's a whole other story, and we addressed that yesterday, right? Because we're saying that God makes provision in that sense. So God is not saying do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No one's saying that. What we are, and if you know that you've done something, make it right. Like that's, that's just common sense, right? What we're saying in this is that God is declaring one righteous while they are striving to become righteous. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ covers the weaknesses and the failures of a person as they are striving to overcome and become like Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what we're saying, right? So, like, should I confess or not? That's not this conversation. Of course you should. Like, that's, that's basic math of the, of the plan of salvation. What we're saying is, as someone is trying to be like Jesus, they're going to mess up 1,000%. God understands that. And so God is declaring you righteous while you're striving to be righteous and while He's growing you and making you righteous. You're covered in that time, right? That's the point that we're making. Yeah, this isn't an issue about confession. Uh, ladies first. Yeah, so you wouldn't just suddenly up and die with unconfessed sin. I don't think it will happen that way because right. God is working with you and He knows where you're at and He's leading you. Your probation won't just close just like that. Right. Yeah. I feel like He's working to make you righteous and so He is. He sees where you're at and how much you need and so on and right. so forth. And, and the thing is, like, with your question is the undertone that God is looking for reasons to not get me into heaven, mm-hmm. right? That's the fear, is that like, man, I'm going to catch him on a bad day, or like I wasn't good enough. Well, the whole point of the gospel is not whether you're good enough. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus is good enough, right? And he's standing in our stead. And as we're striving to be like Jesus, and God's final generation will end up having a perfectly, you know, replicated character of Christ in them. Right? There will be a full measure of the Spirit given unto them. They would rather die than sin. That's a whole other story. Right? But this is not an issue of the other side. Okay? And God's looking at the trajectory of the heart. Right? Ellen White talks about this in Steps of Christ, Matthew, that where are your affections? Where's the affection of the heart? And if all you're thinking about is carnal, worldly, wicked, debaucherous things, and you don't care about God, that's a different story. But if you're a genuine-hearted Christian who is longing to go to heaven and is working through a journey to get to that point, God understands that. Does that make sense? He's not looking for reasons and technicalities to kick you out, right? Yes? Um, for some reason, I think of it this way. So it's kind of like he gives you a gym membership but knows that it's a journey to, you know, become strong. Yeah, you could phrase it this way. God views you as a graduate while you're in school. 
So you get your diploma on day one, and if you drop out of school, that changes everything. But if you were in school striving to become what He already declares that you are, you're covered. Does that make sense? And so that, that's how this process works. But there are so many Christians who don't know this. They're thinking, like, I'm in favor, out of favor, in favor, out of favor. And it's so stressful because, again, the assumption is the projection of God's character that Satan puts in our mind, that God is against you, that God is not for you, that God is looking for reasons to keep you out of heaven, and He has never been that way. Remember, how many gates are there in the New Jerusalem? Twelve of them. There's a reason for that, right? God is implying ease of access. He's not made it hard to get into heaven. Now, He's not saying there's no standard either, right? Jesus has met the standard perfectly, and the Spirit of God will convict you when you're outside of that standard and will point you to Jesus who can enable you to succeed in that standard. God is not palliating sin. God is not saying, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It killed Jesus. We're going to deal with that in the faith of Jesus. But what we are saying is, if you are genuinely following Jesus and repenting as you recognize what you do wrong, you're covered, man. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? And that's what Ellen White's saying. Okay? And that's what the Bible's saying. And uh, Jones says this in the Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection. He says, and thus it is that for the sins which we have actually committed, for the sins that are past, his righteousness is imputed to us as our sins were imputed to him. And to keep us from sinning, his righteousness is imparted to us in our flesh as our flesh with its liability to sin was imparted to him. Thus, he is the complete Savior. He saves from all the sins that we have actually committed and saves equally from all the sins that we might commit dwelling apart from him. Isn't that amazing? The good news of the gospel, y'all. Yes. What is that called? The consecrated way to Christian perfection. I listened to the whole audio. Or you can just do CWCP in the Ellen White app. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, really well done. Consecrated way to Christian perfection. But it's not this like hyper-perfectionism that people are freaked out about. That P word just makes people lose their lunch. It's so ridiculous. There's some academy kids still right now that are up in arms over it. It's like, guys, don't worry about the P word. Just worry about this. Everything else will take care of itself. Okay? So, that was just the first text, though. We haven't even gotten that far. If you, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. Who got it? For as many as are led by the Holy Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself, oh, yeah, the Spirit itself beareth witness uh, with our spirit that we are the children of God. You may read verse 17. Yeah. And if and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. If so. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified, that we, that we may be also glorified together. All right. So, literally, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit confirms that you are a child of God. So, we've seen two texts in this, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Romans 8, 14 to 16. Both texts are saying the same thing, that when you believe in Jesus, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we talked about this, was that you, Sasha, yesterday we talked about the... Um, 
when the Spirit is removed and what does that mean? There are many things the Holy Spirit's doing. This is another one of those things that the Holy Spirit is testifying in heaven on our behalf that this person belongs here. This is a child of God. Someone is witnessing and testifying on our behalf that we belong in the royal family. We are joint heirs with Christ, which means that everything that Christ deserves and will receive, we deserve and will receive. We're joint heirs with Him, we're told. But there's this interesting word here that's used, and it's the word adoption. And what's being implied here is that we are accepted into a new family. We were formerly unloved, unaccepted. We had no home. But somebody saw something of value in us and welcomed them, welcomed us into their home, right? So we're not brought into bondage to fear, right? We're accepted and we're adopted into a new family. And so the Spirit's testifying that this person is a child of God. So it leads to a question. When someone is adopted into a family, how much do they know regarding the expectations of the family that they're joining? Not much. much. How, How much do they know about how to achieve those expectations when they get into that family? Not a lot, right? We don't think through the language that the Bible uses. We just burn past it. Adoption, that's nice. Anyway, moving on. But stop. Think about what's actually being said there. You're being welcomed into a new home, and as an orphan, you don't know what this family expects, and you don't know how to achieve what they expect. Does the family know that? Does the family love you less because you don't know enough and don't know how to get there? Okay, but then why do you think God views you that way? Why do you think God looks at you as an idiot that can't get anything right and is a waste of his time, and is so frustrating that they're not achieving at a certain rate. We don't, we don't think through the language of the Bible and how disharmonious our current views of ourselves and our standing with God are with what the Bible says. So it's super important to kind of work through this. So here's the point. They don't know what's expected. They just know that they're accepted. When you're adopted into a new family, you don't know what they expect of you. All you know is that I'm accepted and I belong here. And that's enough for right now. Take a moment to enjoy that before you beat yourself up for what you're not. You just accepted him. You just recommitted your life to him. There's a lot you don't know. God understands that. Yeah, he's not holding that against you. So I think this is super important. So this is what makes the next ministry of the Holy Spirit so amazing. Because the second work is to conform, to attribute the work of the priest. Go to Romans chapter 8. You're still there, but go to a few verses earlier, verses 3 through 8. Romans 8, verses 3 through 8. Who got it? Yes. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, it condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Wait, where did you want? Through verse 8. Oh, sorry. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then uh, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, so... It took me a long time to understand these verses. When I would give this Bible study initially, I would just burn through verses 3 to 8, 
and move on to the next verse and hope they wouldn't ask any questions. And this is going to happen in your life at some point when you're giving studies like, I don't really get it. And then I got it. So what Paul's saying in verse 3, for what the law could not do, save us, because it would, our, what the law could not do, save us, because of the weakness of our flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law, God did. So for what the law could not do, God did. In sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and flesh like ours, and on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, and He overcame sin in the flesh, and He tells us why in verse 4, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay? So the law can't save you. God knows that. So He sent Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, He will empower you to begin to keep the law in His strength. That's what He's saying. Law can't save you. Your flesh is too weak to keep it. You can't do it. Okay? So, um, we dealt with that. And we deal with that. Great. Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 to 17. I am so strongly tempted to deal with the covenants in the three angels messages because it makes perfect sense to do it, but it's one of the fundamental belief studies that I normally do. So I'm like, ah, do I, do I not? So we'll see. But either way, you're going to get the teaching. I just don't know when to do it. But anyway, go to Hebrews 10. So I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. Somebody that hasn't read yet. Mm-hmm. Whereof where the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, or after that he had said before, This is a covenant that I will make with them. After those days, say the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. All right. So, what are the, the main things that God is promising to do in these verses? Okay, he's going to write the law in our heart and in our mind, and what else is he promising to do? Remember, remember our sins no more, right? To forget our sins. It's the idea of separating us from our sins that we've talked about before, right? So God promises to write his law in our hearts and in our minds, and he also promises to remember our sins no more. Now, this is actually the second time that Paul quotes Jeremiah 31 in the book of Hebrews. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, and so the Holy Spirit seals us when we believe the gospel, thereby confirming that we are children of God and that heaven is our home. Right? This is attributing Christ's work as the Lamb to us. Right? Canceling our debt, standing in our stead. But then he begins to teach us how to live like a child of God by writing his law in our hearts and in our minds, which is attributing the work of the priest. And I love this. Okay? So... He first declares us righteous, and then He teaches us how to become righteous, right? He empowers us through His successful, victorious life that's already been lived, right? That's an objective truth. Jesus has already died for the sins of all humanity. He's already achieved what would be necessary for the justification of all of humanity. He's already lived the righteous life that all of humanity is asked to live. That's already done. That's in the past. That's an objective truth. But it becomes a subjective reality when you believe the gospel. You are declared righteous, and from that point forward, He's beginning a work of making you righteous through the growth and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Does that make sense? And this is part of what we're called to do in preaching the three angels' messages. Not just saying, God's people keep the commandments, get with the program. How? How does God view me as I'm striving to become that? This needs to be part of that conversation, right? Which is why we're giving it to you, so you can do that. All right, 
Uh, yeah, we'll do it. So I'm going to read Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. By someone, I meant somebody actually in this room. Um, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. That's like the best news ever. Seriously. Anything that you will ever need to succeed in the Christian experience was just laid out in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27 of Ezekiel 36. That's it. All right. So here's the basic issues. You're dirty. He says, I'll cleanse you. You got idols. I can get rid of those. You have a stony heart. I can give you the ability to be able to feel again. You're cold and indifferent. I can help you to feel again. Right? If you have a stony heart, I'll give you a new one. You're cold and indifferent. I'll help you to be able to feel again. You can't obey. I'll empower you to obey. Like literally, you got any more objections? Like everything that you need is accounted for in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and God's covenantal promise to humanity. It's all there. Whole thing, guys. So by accepting the gospel, this grants the Holy Spirit access to begin His work of sealing us, the work of the Lamb, and transforming us into Christ's image, which again is the work of the priest. He immediately imputes Christ's righteousness to us, thereby justifying us. Then He begins the process of imparting Christ's righteousness to us by empowering us to receive and to live Christ's perfect life. Yeah? All right, this is sanctification. So every step of the way, we stand justified before the Father, assuming that we abide in Jesus, right? If you abide in Jesus, you're good, okay? Our confessed sin is covered and inside the sanctuary, and He's purging us of any remaining sin to be able to stand without mediation. And if we die before He finishes that work, we're still covered, right? So we are not saying that someone has to have every sin out of their life by the time that they die or like they're toast, right? Like if they're working through that, because sanctification, we're told, is the work of a lifetime. And if you, for whatever reasons, pass before God finishes that work, you're still sealed. If you're abiding in Jesus and growing in Jesus and doing the best you can with what you knew, He understands. That, that expectation of perfection, if you will, is only applying to the last generation that are on earth when Jesus comes, who have fully received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who would rather die than sin and have received the seal of God. Everybody else is striving towards that goal, and if they pass before they get there, if they're on that trajectory, they're still sealed. Okay? Yes? Um, something, that, something that I see is like a marker of truth, I guess just based on the life of Christ, is um, like moderation, like being in the middle of it, you know? Because we've got the two ditches that are like, they're like, oh, you don't got to do anything good. Once saved, always saved, do whatever you want under grace. Then we've got the other ditch, it's like, you have to have to be perfect, you know, it's all realistic, like, it, it can be subtle, but it's, it's a ditch for sure. 
And then, and then this message, what we're covering right now, the, you know, what, what we're what we're discussing, is like right in the middle. It's like, you know, it, it's like what Jesus did. He was just like he was right in between. The solution is balanced. You know? Yeah. So you're not denying the reality that God has expectations, but you're also not denying the reality that God is merciful. You can actually embrace both. Yes. It's funny because Mary Ellen gives Sasha and well, We just had this conversation last night. Because I was practicing about Eve, and I don't know if you're stealing my thunder or if you're fading away. I think it's a little bit of both. But this is like exactly what, like this is just filling in a lot of things. I chose not to use any outside sources. And God has been like giving me a ton of stuff in regards to it. But also, that's like what we talked about yesterday about the balance and that it's like either people are, you know, nothing matters we're justified, but then they forget about the sanctification, and that there is something we need to do, so. Yeah, and then the other camp, I don't know why, I, I struggle with understanding the psychology behind this grizzled approach and kind of crusty approach in conservatism, and, and I'm a man, again, with conservative principles, but I struggle to understand what would motivate somebody to preach such a Christless emphasis and how you could sleep at night and live with yourself. I don't understand how that can happen. Like, you're miserable. You can't really enjoy life when the bar is so high that you'll never get there. It's, it's impossible to really find peace in life. The only way that you will find peace, and this happens a lot, is by being critical of everybody else to at least elevate yourself in your own eyes, but not in God's. So at least you feel a little bit higher. So I eat better than that guy. I dress better than that guy right? My theology is better than that guy. Or we're bleeding off that pressure of the shame that we feel with secret sin. And this is why you hear of like super conservative people who are doing like not good things, sexually molesting girls in their ministry or cheating on their wives or whatever. Like there has to be some form of outlet to even be able to live and enjoy life, right? So they're like super intemperate behind doors, but they talk about being militantly temperate in front of the public. Whatever it is, like there has to be some form of release valve for all that shame and pressure that you're feeling inside because you don't actually have a healthy view of God in the gospel. Something's not right. Either you're judging and and condemning and criticizing others to be able to get by, or you're controlling with your wife and your kids and making them miserable, right? To just be an authoritarian. Like there's, there's always gnarly side effects to this frame of thinking. And you just think, why live in that space when you could just be at peace and in rest and bless the people around you? It's just strange. Uh, Marianka and Sasha? Yeah, like uh, on both extremes, I see just self being on the throne. But if you have the full picture of God, the proper marriage, if you will, of the, the two principles, the principles not being isolated but being in community, then self is is dead and off the throne, and God is on the throne. Mm-hmm. And when you know, as long as we want to stay on one extreme or the other, and not embrace the other side of the coin, if you will, self is on the throne. Yeah, and it, it never works out well when that's the case. I think like the issue, like I think it's real when that mindset comes from, like you want to, you've been, I don't know, you've seen a little bit of the glory of God, and you're trying so hard to not offend God and to walk in all. I don't know, it's just a super conscientious mind. Yeah. But I'd say that the issue comes in that you're going to have one, one horrible time trying to live up to that because 
I see that the only way you will be able to is unless you are living and abiding in Jesus and God is pouring into you, then you can and you will, by his grace, walk in righteousness. Otherwise, if you spend too much time trying to walk in righteousness without immersing yourself in the Spirit of God, you won't be able to do it. You'll keep failing. It's true. I'm looking for a statement here. You're reminding me of a statement. Um, DA 660, I think. I think when you get clever, D is like when people see themselves clearly, you know, they just see the whole world like that. So it's just, a, again, a mistaken, a mistaken view of God that you then are projecting on yourself and you're projecting on everybody else. Oh, man. That's, that's where I park my truck. <laughs> that's where I parked my spirituality truck. It's right in the self-loading parking lot. Our own impulses. Yeah, it is. It's like having a mind that's super conscientious. You read all the things in the spirit of prophecy, and you're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And yeah. So you're super conscientious, but you make the mistake of trying to do it in your own strength instead of hiding yourself in Jesus. Yeah. God will pour into you. The things because you can't do it, you can't live up to that. There's um there's actually a condition for this. It's it's basically a form of spiritual OCD. It's called scrupulosity, and this is this is really a thing. And one of our teachers that's going to be here this year struggled with that uh, severely. Went through a Bible college and felt like they'd walk down the sidewalk and feel like, man, this person walked by and they didn't tell about Jesus, and it would just like drive. I had to tell it, and so they would just like, I have to tell them, and like. We laugh, but there, th- this is a real thing where, like, the, the moral compass is so disturbed. There's such a conscientiousness that it ends up being a curse to us, not a blessing. So we're overthinking. We're apologizing to everyone about everything all the time, and we're just in bondage. And it's because of this kind of hyperactive conscience. Listen to what Ella White says about obedience. This is Desire of Ages 668. She says, All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims and blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. It won't be bondage. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. And so it becomes a natural impulse, right, of us being, our, our obedience will be birthed out of a natural impulse to love and be with God, as opposed to, I have to do this or I'm in trouble, right? That's where that hyperactive conscience comes in, and, it, and a lot of it's rooted in an unhealthy view of God, that God's against me, I better, I better make it right or I'm going to, ah, Right? Like that's, that anxiety was never meant to be the Christian experience. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't think this hyperactive conscience is the rest he's talking about. I don't think the anxiety that many of our people, and I'm not shaming people for having that. This is part of the human condition that we have to surrender and release to God. What I'm saying is, it's not what God wants for us. Does that make sense? Okay, because this, this is a real thing, and some people, there are, 
genetic dispositions in certain directions and so forth. So we have to kind of keep all that in mind. But anyway, again, L. White says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for it. Yes. Desire of Ages 668. I think it's point three, but Desire of Ages 668. Yeah, it's a super helpful quote. I used to have my best friend quote. I'd be preaching. I was like, dang it, I always forget the reference. Mark, what is it? And he'd scream it from the back of the crowd, but Mark's not here. He lives in California. He got married. He left me. What a jerk. Um, I'm just kidding. All right, so check this out. So now, now you kind of had the big picture, right, of how God's viewing us and what happens. Listen to this. If you fell asleep and have not been paying attention, shame on you. Uh, that's, that's what I meant to say. Sorry, it just, it just came out. Um, no, no, pay attention, because this, this is literally manna from heaven. This is such good news, guys. Like, this will rock your dang socks off. Christ Object Lesson 65.2. She says, the germination of the seed, she's speaking of the parable of Jesus, the blade, the kernel, and the ear. A little shameless plug if someone wants to preach on that one. She says, the germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life, and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. And listen to what she says next. As its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. Can I preach right now? All right. I was going to do it anyway. (laughs) She says that the Christian experience is going to have seasons of growth which are silent and imperceptible. What does that mean? You will not be able to tell that you are growing. Why is this important? Because the dirty old devil starts barking up your tree and says, hey, you just got to core. You've been here for six weeks, eight weeks. I don't even know how long. He knows. He probably told you the right dates. I can't think of them. Whatever it is, you've been here for this long. You still don't have a vibrant devotional life. You still can't wake up on time. You still can't get off the internet. You still can't whatever the situation is that you're struggling with, right? You're still, you've been knocking on doors for weeks. You're still afraid and looking for reasons to not go into the field. Whatever those things are that he barks up your tree and tells you, you've been doing this for so long and you're not any different, which means this isn't working for you. So just quit. You ever had those thoughts? Clearly this works for everybody else, but it ain't working for you. Maybe you're just not cut out for this, so leave. Some of you are about to buy a plane ticket to get out of here. You're not worth it. Just get out of here. Just go. It's not not my first rodeo, bro. I'm just saying. It's not my first rodeo. And these thoughts run through people's heads because this isn't working for me. I'm not good enough. What a waste of time. Clearly, I just am not there. And what Ellen White just told us on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ is that your growth is going to be silent and imperceptible at times. So just because you don't see yourself growing and the devil tells you that you're not growing and you can't see that you're growing to argue with him, you think to yourself, man, he's right. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. Maybe I should just quit. She says this is the way the Christian life is going to look at times. It's silent and imperceptible. But, she says, it's also silent and imperceptible, but continuous. 
You know what that means? How fast you grow is none of your business and stop worrying about it. Write that down. <laughs> How fast you grow is none of your business and stop worrying about it. Yeah, but so-and-so gives these worships that are so powerful. So what? Your responsibility is to fight in your own armor and to grow at the pace that God is working with you on. So what? It's not your problem. We're being like Peter in John 21. Jesus says, Pete, do you love me? Yeah, then follow me. It's going to hurt, but follow me. And Peter's immediate fleshly response is to look behind him and see John walking back there and says, yeah, 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 but what about this guy? And Jesus tells him, that's none of your business. You follow me. If he lives till I come, so what? That has nothing to do with this conversation, Peter. I asked you to follow me. It's the same thing for you guys. And I'm not saying you're never going to see growth. You will. But there will be seasons in your growth that are silent and imperceptible. So what? So what? How fast you grow is not your problem. Just stay in the soil, guys. Stay in the soil. You will grow. If you keep abiding in Jesus, it is guaranteed that you will grow. Yeah? Listen to what she says next. That's not even the good part. It gets gooder. She says, at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Stew on that one for a second, would you? While I go to art class. At every stage of development, our lives may be perfect. Here's part of the problem. For many of us, We think that this is what perfection looks like. A big honking fruit tree with a bunch of fruit on it. That's what we think it looks like. Because we as Seventh-day Adventists traditionally have focused on the end of the assembly line and wholeheartedly abandoned communicating the fact that it's an assembly line and that there's a process that one goes through. So if you were to do a poll of most Adventists today of what God expects at the end of time, most people could give a right answer. But if you were to ask those same people, how does God view them as he's working them through and to that expectation, most people wouldn't have a good answer to that. I'm probably not good enough. I'm probably lost. And if you ask them how to get to the end goal, they probably couldn't answer that either. So our people know more about what God expects than they do about how God has promised to enable them to succeed in what he expects. And they don't know how God views them while he's making them into what he expects. So we think, I have to be this at the end of time or I'll be lost. And so then the logical response is, well, if I have to be, if I'm lost, if I don't look like this then, well, wait a minute, I don't look like this right now. Am I lost right now? Are you understanding the psychology that, that happens when you lift up a high expectation, but you don't communicate how to get there or how God views you as you're striving to get there? It leads to really damaging 
mental machines. <laughs> it messes us up, like super bad and stuff. So we think this is what perfection looks like. But what we just read says that this is what perfection looks like. And this is what perfection looks like. And this is what perfection looks like. You are viewed as righteous and perfect at every stage of development as you're walking with Jesus. As long as you keep abiding in Jesus, you are viewed as righteous at every stage of that journey. Our people don't know that. And they're deeply discouraged. So again, how fast you grow is none of your business. Your job is to stay in the soil because what the devil's telling you is this ain't working. It doesn't work for you. So just pull yourself out of the soil and find some other job. And as soon as you pull yourself out of the soil, he wins. But if you stay in that soil, you will grow. It's guaranteed. How many people think it would be reasonable if I were to plant a tomato plant right outside here in these wood chips? If I were to plant a tomato plant tonight, how reasonable would it be of me to show up to class tomorrow and look out that window and be upset that there was not a tall, luscious tomato plant with big tomatoes on it? How many people think it would be reasonable for me to be upset if that wasn't what I saw? Yeah, it's totally unreasonable. Here's the thing, guys. You do the same thing to yourselves with character growth. You're upset at yourselves for not being this when God doesn't expect you to be this right now. He expects you to be this. Or maybe this. Or maybe this. It depends on when you were planted, how you were planted, what your surrounding environment has been, what your knowledge is, and so forth. Yes? Yeah, that, we, we cover that in devotions class. That's right. That's exactly right, right? So it seems like nothing, so that, that growth is silent and imperceptible because it's incremental changes, right? You don't wake up tomorrow morning when you say yes to Jesus like the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. It doesn't work that way, right? It's a process, and she says that. Yes? Right. He was reading, but then in the life of Abraham, there was a, we, we didn't see that, and that's trying to make sense of like, why that Yeah. That, that's why, right? That when Abraham entrusted his story to Jesus, Jesus rewrote his story as if Jesus lived his story, right? And so we haven't even finished. We just read the first line of the second paragraph. We haven't finished it yet. So at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. You will grow. If you stay, God's plan for you is for you to stay in the soil. Satan's plan for you is to remove yourself from the soil because you're not a good seed. You'll never be good enough. Just quit. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. We, we read that quote to people and we don't even know the context of it. The whole quote is amazing. The previous paragraph and this one, okay? So sanctification is a work of a lifetime. As our opportunities multiply, our experiences will enlarge and our knowledge increase, okay? So as you put yourself in good soil, 
as you put yourself in proximity to the Son of Righteousness, as you're receiving the water of the Holy Spirit, right? As you're putting yourself in favorable conditions for growth, you will grow. She says, we'll become strong to bear responsibility and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. Some of you have grown up in homes with very little spiritual instruction. And if you did get it, it was legalistic and and painful, super liberal and neglectful. Who knows what it was? The point is, your growth is going to be in proportion to your privileges. So how God views you on where you should be right now is not based upon society's standards. It's not based upon the church's standards. It's based upon the privileges that you were given in life. Are you understanding? And you can be viewed as perfect at every stage of development. Okay? Is that good news or what? All right. Any thoughts on that before we take a break? Yeah. This is what the 1888 message did to people. Like they found a healing and a freedom and finally realized, like I told you about that lady yesterday, finally realized I'm actually forgiven and God actually loves me. This is what the gospel is supposed to do. We have not downplayed the standard at all, have we? We've not even touched that and said, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. You can find assurance while maintaining a standard, but it comes through the message of Christ and his righteousness, right? Yes. Um, what she was saying about um, our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges, does that mean it's based on like the knowledge you grew up with? Or what, what exactly does that mean? It's based upon our access to a healthy understanding of what we're talking about right now. Yeah, right? So the privilege you have doesn't mean that, like, I grew up with, you know, there's a lot of things that that factor into that. Did you grow up in a healthy home, right? Did you grow up in a place where your view of God was healthy, where you were given infrastructure to see God in a healthy way? Because our growth and our understanding of theology and everything else, right, our biggest interpretive lens is our view of God. So if we have an unhealthy view of God, we're going to come to unhealthy conclusions and live a miserable experience, and our growth will probably not be the same as somebody who grew up in soil, like what we're talking about today, right? Who never had to worry about whether God was for them or against them, right? And could, it, could, it would be easier for them, right? It's like removing the weeds from the soil. Some of us have some pretty gnarly weeds of bad beliefs, bad family stuff, bad environmental stuff. And so it's harder for the seeds to grow than it would be in a very healthy, peaceful environment. Does that make sense? And that goes across the board, family societal stuff, everything. That doesn't mean that rich people have an easier path to heaven. That's not what she's saying. But she's talking about, I think, um, the privileges that matter most in life, right? Healthy community, healthy instruction in the things of God, healthy environmental factors, and so forth. Yeah. And so that's why I think, like, it's not fair for you to be hard on yourself if you grew up in a legalistic home. Like, of course you wouldn't know any better, right? Because, or a super liberal home where there were no expectations given or a non-religious home altogether and you're a new Christian. Like how God works with you is based upon what he knows the trajectory of your life could even come about. You know what I mean? What its potential is based upon the environments around it. It kind of all just like connected together in my brain that like I was trying to kind of live up to the standards that like my parents had like raised me with and just the stuff that they had come to like believe and have as their values over the years 
but like I hadn't had their growing experience over the years, and so I'm thinking, man, I have to be good like this, like this is what good looks like, and I have to like live up to mm-hmm. these standards. Um, but now I just click this, like, no, you have problems, and you got to start at square one. Right. Your your journey is not their journey. And this is, I think, part of the parable of, of the, the wise and foolish virgins. Somebody else's experience isn't going to help you get to the end of the, of the journey. You're going to have to have your own experience. And your experience may look different. You know, my, my best friend had to leave the church to come back to the church because he had really unhealthy views of God. And he, had, he went through this process to kind of like leave and figure it out and come back. He was the same one that had to give up on a devotional life to start a devotional life. Like... I'm not recommending people quit. I'm just saying that his journey was a process that may not be what somebody else's journey is. But at the end of the day, God was working his life every step of the journey. Mark figured it out, and he's growing, right? So we shouldn't be comparing our journey to somebody else. Paul says comparing ourselves one with another is not wise. And it's not just about our money or our spirituality. Like It's about just your, the basic premises of how you do life. It's not your problem. Somebody else's experience is not your problem. Stop worrying about them, right? In a sense of how I compare to them, that's not your problem. Your responsibility is to stay in the soil. That's it. To put yourself in the best circumstances to grow, which is why you're here, by the way. You have put yourself in a good place to grow. And if you will take in all the cultivation and investment that the program is designed to give you, the classes, the outreach, the community you have with each other, right? The opportunity to ask questions, be discipled by other teachers who come in. If you take advantage, the beautiful outdoors, right? The work involvement that you have. If you take advantage of what God has given you here, you're going to grow. If you neglect the things that God has given, you won't grow as much, right? Everything that's here for you is for you to grow. So take advantage of it, right? Like while you have time, I'm telling you guys, you're going to blink and it's the end of May. And you're going to have regrets. It happens every single year. Man, like I wish I hadn't not done this. I wish I wouldn't have, you know, checked out on this. I wish I wouldn't have ignored so-and-so when it turns out we could have been really close. I just didn't think about it at the time because I got a first read on them that I didn't like. There's a lot of regret that people have leaving this program. I never spent any time outside. I just slept in my dorm room every break that I had. I never got to know the people around me. I was on the internet all the time. I never got to interact with real human beings and go for walks. Like, take advantage of an environment where you will never get this again. You're going back to life, guys. Like, you're not going to, please don't go to another school, right? Don't go to AFCO. Don't go to Souls. I mean, if you want to continue literature, go to Souls, right? Take their second year. We'll figure something out. I'm just saying, like, in a general sense, don't stay in environments like this your whole life. Like, incubators serve a purpose for a season. You don't live in them right? It's like you, you weren't called to live in an incubator. Incubators strengthen you to be able to do life once you leave the incubator. So take what you've learned and do something with it. It's just my, my appeal to you. And take advantage of what's here or you lose blessings. You're not lost. God doesn't hate you, but you're losing blessings. And you don't want to leave this place and wish that you could have this time again and you can't have this time again. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't need to go to every school that Adventism offers, right? You don't. Like, it's a waste of money. Like, it's, it's, if you, if you have an intention of going into literature work, the only thing that we don't offer is leadership training in that. And, and Souls offers the best education hands down in that. Absolutely. And go do it. If that's where you feel God's calling you. But outside of that, you don't need to go to AFCO to learn how to do Bible work. 
you're going to do Bible work here for five months. There's just three months, right? Like it's, and I'm not comparing apples to apples. I'm friends with everybody who runs all these schools, and I love them. I'm glad that they run. We're not competing with one another. I'm just saying, once you go to one, go to work. <laughs> go back and do what you're called to do. Don't, because it, oh, it's so warm and nice here. I don't want to, yeah, it's true. It's helpful, but like there's a world that needs to be warned. You didn't learn this to go hang out with more Adventist missionaries. You learned this to go tell the world, right? Anyway, I don't know how I got on that tangent. It happens. Um, all right, let's pray. God, thank you for this chance uh, to have our minds blown about your goodness, your love for us, and how you view us. I pray that we would not keep what we've learned to ourselves and bless us with a refreshing break. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.